Well, welcome to Faith. Uh, my name is Mike, I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's good to be with you. Uh, as we get started today, again, we just want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. And uh, if you're joining us in person, you're joining us online, we're really grateful to get to spend some of your Sunday with you. As we begin, uh, is everybody familiar with the term trolling? All right. If, if you're not, trolling refers to something that happens online. It's something that somebody would post, say, do online. And it's done specifically to try and elicit a response from somebody else. Now, sometimes trolling, oftentimes trolling is malicious, and we tend to think of it that way. But it doesn't have to be. Sometimes it can be intentional. Sometimes it can be strategic. For example, in Montgomery, Alabama, there's a minor league baseball team called the Biscuits. Yeah, isn't that intimidating, right? Uh, the Biscuits. Now, the Biscuits, they engaged in some trolling in an effort to try and get onto the radar of a demographic that was largely unaware that they even existed. What the, dis what the Biscuits did is they hosted a millennial night, complete with avocado burgers, selfie stations, napping areas, and the all-important participation ribbon, Right? And they're like, hey, we're going to get a hold of the millennials. We're going to get their attention. In fact, they even went so far as they're like, hey, you want something for free. You don't want to have to work for it. You're in luck. We got the thing for you. You know, because if you're a millennial, this is how you think, according to the biscuits. So they put this up on, um, online, and it worked. Like, millennials had no idea the biscuits were even out there. And then the biscuits blew up <laughs> on the internet. You know, like all, all millennials in Alabama were talking about were the biscuits. Now, it wasn't positive, but they knew they existed, right? And so it was trolling. It was strategic. Now, we bring this up because the passage that we're going to look at today has something akin to trolling taking place in it. See, we're in, in the midst of this series that we've entitled Signs. And in this series, each week we're looking at a different miracle that Jesus performed that the Apostle John records. And we've been saying throughout this series that these signs are and are not certain things, that these signs are actually historical events. They're not just fairy tales that John made up. That these signs, um, they are real acts of God intervening in the usual course of natural law. This is an ignorance on John's part about how science works. And probably most importantly, we've been saying that these signs are meant to authenticate a messenger and a message from God. That each one of these signs, they teach us something about who Jesus is and how life works. John put it this way, he said, but these, these referring to the signs, but these were written that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life in the power of his name. So each week, we're just taking one of these signs. We're kind of dissecting the thing. And we're going, hey, what does this thing teach me about who Jesus is? What does this sign teach me about life or maybe even both? So we're going to take a minute and we're going to pray. And then we'll get into today's sign. Today, we want to pray specifically about a couple of families connected to our church. Many of you are, are aware, many, maybe, maybe you're not of what's going on with the Eidness family. Uh, Johannes, who is literally right below me, pushing buttons and making things come up on the screen. Uh, Johannes is having surgery Tuesday for cancer, and we want to be praying for him. But we all also want to pray for Kari, uh, his daughter. Uh, Kari found out recently that she has cancer as well, and is going to be getting some testing, and is going to be having surgery for her cancer uh, pretty quickly. So we want to be praying for them and just for their family as a whole. 
And we also want to be praying uh, for Tammy and Hochi Hernandez. Tammy and Hochi are church planters that we partner with there in the Dominican Republic. Last week, uh, Tammy was in a boating accident, broke her clavicle, and she's got fluid building in her lungs. And so if that fluid doesn't go away naturally, she's got to figure out how to have surgery to get the fluid out of there in the Dominican Republic, which is a difficult thing to do. So I want to pray for them and our time together as well. Father, thank you so much just for the Idens family. Um, just pray that you'd have your hands on Johannes as he has surgery this week. Father, we pray for wisdom for the doctors, for healing for his body as uh, he is recovering. Pray for Kari, that you would help the doctors just fully and accurately assess what is going on. And again, Father, we pray for your hand of mercy and healing on her body. And just pray for Toby and for Jody as they're caring. And just for your hand of peace and calm and comfort in their home. God, we pray for Tammy that you would bring healing to her broken bones, that you would help this fluid in her lungs be, reserved, um, be addressed naturally. God, I pray she wouldn't find herself in a spot where she's got to seek significant medical attention in a country where that's difficult to get your hands on. Again, we just pray for calm for her and for Hochi and, and for their family. And just as we look at this next miracle, Jesus, please open up our minds, our hearts to you and to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today's miracle is found in John chapter 6. We're going to pick up in uh, verse 1, and it goes something like this. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far, sea, uh, the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up to the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up, and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in the place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, this particular miracle is one that's recorded in all four of Jesus' biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you, when you look, though, at the other three biographies, the other three include a lot of details that John left out. Like, like I don't know if John's thinking, hey, people have read this thing three times already. I can take for granted they know some of the details and, and just give them some different pieces. Either way, though, whether you just look at what, what John records or whether you look at, you know, a harmony of the Gospels where you include all four of the writers and the details, 
Jesus and his disciples have a mess on their hands here. Now, John will start off, he'll say, sometime after this. So, you know, John's you know, letting you know this whole thing really begins with events that took place beforehand. And the events that John is pointing to are specifically the murder of John the Baptist. One of Jesus' favorite people, his cousin, is murdered by King Herod. And Jesus, this death impacts Jesus significantly on an emotional level. And so Jesus tries to get away from it all. He's going to what he thinks is going to be a lonely, remote place where he's going to get alone and just be with his disciples and just kind of get some downtime, you know, process what's going on, decompress a little bit. But instead, you have this massive crowd. They figure out where Jesus is headed. They go there. They show up. And Jesus has compassion on them. He feels badly for them. And so he spends a day teaching them and healing their sick. But now we're at the end of the day. It's late, nobody's had anything to eat, they're in the middle of no place, folks are hungry, and, and like, they, they want Jesus to do something about this. They, these folks showed up, they didn't bring anything to eat, because they didn't think they're going to be there all day. But when they hear Jesus teaching, they don't want to leave. But now, again, it, I mean, it's like, it's late, it's getting dark, we're hungry, we, we want to eat. We're, you know, and, and they're looking for Jesus and his disciples to do something about this. They've got a mess on their hands. Now here's the thing about messes. We tend to think messes are bad. We don't want any, we, we don't want any part of messes. Not every mess is a bad thing. Not every mess is bad. You see, where we see a mess... God sees room for a miracle. Where we see cause to be anxious and worried and to panic, God sees an opportunity to do only what he can do and to show us who he is and where real life is found in the process. Where we see a mess, God sees room for a miracle. And Jesus saw that here. There's this massive crowd. John tells us we got 5,000 men. Matthew tells us this doesn't include the women and children. So you could easily have 10,000 people here. And you have 10,000 people who are hungry. They start crowding Jesus and his disciples. They're looking for them to do something about this. And now, I love how Jesus responds. And I in part love how Jesus responds because he's doing this to Philip and not to me. All right? Like, I'm, I'm a happy student of when Jesus messes with other people. I don't like it as much when I feel like Jesus is messing with my life. But he's messing with Philip here, so I like this, right? And, and so Jesus basically says to Philip, Philip, these people are hungry. What are you going to do about this? They're getting hangry, Phil. What are you going to do to make sure these people get something to eat before they leave? Because if they just go the way they are, they're going to fall out on the way home. And I, I, I love even more John's commentary on this. He says, he, he being Jesus, he asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's trolling Philip. He is. Jesus, Jesus he knows what he's going to do. Jesus isn't asking this question because Jesus got there and this whole thing caught him off guard. And he's like, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. And Philip's a lot smarter than I am, so I guess I'll ask Philip what to do. When Jesus asks somebody a question, it's not because he doesn't know the information. 
When Jesus asks somebody a question, it's because he's trying to elicit a response. Jesus is setting Philip up. And again, I don't, I don't like when Jesus sets me up. I don't mind when he sets you up because then I get to be a student of this and I get to learn at your expense. We get to learn at Philip's expense. But Jesus is setting him up. He's letting this whole thing unfold. He's dropping it in Philip's hand, but he's doing so for a reason. See, this is a setup designed to drive a lookup. Jesus is setting Philip up, Philip up in an effort to get Philip to look up to him so he can teach Philip about who he is and how life works. It's a setup designed to drive a lookup. Now, Jesus has 12 disciples. Why, why do this to Philip? Could have messed with any of the other 11 guys. Why mess with Philip? Now, some people think, well, because Philip is from the geographic area that they are in right now. So some people think, well, if anybody can figure this out, it's Philip. I tend to think Jesus is messing with Philip because Philip is one of those engineering accountant type guys. Anybody know somebody? Anybody married to one of those kind of guys, right? Okay, there you go, Jessica. All right. See, listen, I don't have anything against those kind of guys. All right? I love those kind of people. I love having them on our finance commission. I love having them on our tech team. They have gifts that I do not have, right? They save my life all the time. Brian, you didn't have enough courage to raise your hands because you're married to one of those kind of girls. It was wise. It's Mother's Day, all right? But like, like Kim, when she was on, yeah, she's on finance, just like all kinds of stuff. I'm like, I don't know how to do this stuff. Just make the numbers work, right? Keep me out of jail. That's my goal here, right? I love those kind of people. I'm not one of those kind of people. Phil was one of those kinds of people. And here, here's how you know Phil was one of those kinds of people. Jesus is like, what are we going to do about this, Philip? And immediately, this Excel sheet erupts inside of Philip's head, right? He goes, all rain man, you know, counts the entire crowd, and then he starts doing the math. He's like, well, Jesus, we had eight months' wages. Some of you made about, you know, minimum wage. You know, we, we wouldn't have enough to get everybody, you know, appetizers here. And then he puts his calculator back into his pocket protector. Jesus is messing with Philip because he's one of those engineering accounting types, and this is a perfect kind of situation to do that for Philip. And Philip is like, Jesus, there's no way. There's, there, there, where are we going to get the money to feed 10,000 people. This, Jesus said, this, this is crazy. And not only so, but Philip's got enough sense to know, and you know from some of the other Gospels, he points it out. He's like, Jesus, even if we had the money, where, we're in the middle of no place. Where are we going to find some place where we can buy food for 10,000 people? Like, who's got that much food just on hand, ready to go? It's like, if, if if as a kid you ever worked at a Dairy Queen or a Dairy Dan or one of those ice cream places, one of the worst things that could happen to you is having your franchise located close enough to a youth sporting event where you were the place where the team came after you know, a game to, to, to commiserate a loss or to celebrate a victory. So you got these poor teenagers who are used to a certain volume and pace of work, and then little Susie and her 20 best friends and all of their parents, 
and all of their siblings and the whole other team and all their parents and all their siblings, they descend on the Dairy Queen all at once and it completely overloads the system and the line wraps around the Dairy Queen and down the block, you know, as far as you can see. And you got these teenagers who are freaking out. Now they're calling down curses from heaven on these poor unsuspecting kids who just want an ice cream cone to make themselves, you know, feel better about things. Like there's, Philip knows, like there's nowhere to get this food even if we could afford this food. Now, as all of this is happening, Andrew is listening in. And Andrew, he he like scrambles around and he finds some little kid, some little boy who has a lunch. And I I oftentimes, you know, read this passage and I think like, how did Andrew find that kid? Like, Like when Andrew was little himself and he's in school, was he one of the kids who would shake down other kids on a playground for their lunch money or their, you know, their dessert? You know, he's got Peter as the muscle and now even as an adult, he's got an eye. He's like, oh, there's a lunch. You know, he just, he can spot it, right? Whatever it is, he finds this kid who has a lunch, five barley loaves, the staple food of the impoverished, two small fish. And he he looks at, here's the need at hand. Here are the resources we've got. I don't know how in the world to reconcile these two things. But I'll just take this kid to Jesus anyway. And, and so Andrew pipes up and he's like, Jesus, I got this kid. I don't know. He's got sardines and crackers. I don't know how, like, what we're going to do with this. But I just thought I'd tell you. Figure it out, Jesus. You see, when, when it comes to the mess, both Andrew and Philip, they have a can't be done as opposed to a can be done mindset. Andrew and Philip, they see this mess before them and they think, it can't be be done, as opposed to it can be done. And in all fairness to Andrew and Philip, like from the perspective that they're coming from it, like it can't be done. Like like, Philip's right. Jesus does not have the money in his ministry budget to feed 10,000 people. Philip is right. There's nowhere to, there's no place to get all this food. And even if, they, even if they had the money and they could get the food, like how are they going to get people there and get the food back and make the logistics work? It can't be done. And Andrew is right. His best resource, he found nobody from no place with next to nothing. Like it can't be done. In their power, in their wisdom, with their resources, Jesus is asking them for the impossible. However, Before we get too down on Philip or too down on Andrew, chances are all kinds of us can relate to what they're thinking and how they're approaching this. Like, just think about the messes you see in your world. Things like poverty or racism or abortion or human trafficking or health care or education or more. And if you've ever seen one of those messes and you, and you just had this inexplicable nagging inside you, this holy discontent that just couldn't leave that thing alone, but then you look at the scope and the complexity of the problem and you find yourself thinking, like, what in the world can I do about that? It can't be done. Or on a more personal level, you, you look at the mess that is your marriage or the mess that is your friend's life at school, 
or, or, the, or the mess that is your finances or your, what, the, the direction your child is heading in or the individual you know who's wrestling with an addiction or the person you care about who's far from God. And you did everything you knew how to do in your wisdom and your power. You spent the resources you had and it didn't even move the needle. And you sensed Jesus would have you do something in response to this, but you're like, it can't be done. See, it's a very difficult place to find ourselves where we see a mess and we sense that we should do something about this, but we know there's no earthly way possible for us to clean this mess up. And like Philip and Andrew, we find ourselves getting anxious and, and, and getting overwhelmed. Sometimes we even find ourselves resentful that Jesus is asking us to do something that we can't do. And so like Andrew and Philip, we try and explain to Jesus like why this can't be done and why maybe we're not the ones to do it. And, if, and then if we can't shake the sense that we are supposed to do something, we either find ourselves paralyzed in front of something that's way too big for us or burning ourselves out trying to do something we don't have a capacity to do. Here's the good news. When it comes to the messes in our lives, when it comes to the messes in our world, whether it's Andrew or Philip or you or me, Jesus is not, he is not asking, what are you going to do about this? He isn't asking that. Oftentimes, that's the first place we go in our minds and our hearts. We see a mess, we sense that the Jesus we read about in the Bible would have us do something about that, and we instantly think Jesus is saying to me, hey, what are you going to do about this? But that's not what Jesus said. Let's go back. When Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming toward him, and he said to Philip, what shall who? What shall we? Where shall we buy bread for these people. Philip, what are we going to do about this? See, so often we will see a mess and instantly we'll take that mess and make it a me problem. I got to figure out how I'm going to fix this thing. That's where Andrew and Philip went. But John is trying to get them and us to see that Jesus wants to take our me problems and make them we problems. That, that, that Jesus isn't calling us to figure this out in our power and our wisdom and our resources alone. That he's asking us, what are we going to do about this? Poor Andrew, poor Philip, they, they, they missed the we and went right to me. See, Jesus, Jesus cares about the messes in your world. He cares about racism and abortion and human trafficking and access to education and health care and nutrition and more. And when you sense Jesus calling you to respond to that, he's saying to you, what are we going to do about this? And Jesus cares about the messes in your life. He cares about your marriage. He cares about your friend. He cares about your finances. He cares about the people you know who are, who are far from God, 
the kid who's off the rails, the person wrestling with an addiction. And when you sense him calling you to do something about that, he's saying to you, what are we going to do about this? See, whatever mess it is that you see, whatever mess it is, you sense that Jesus of the Bible calling you to respond to. The thing John wants us to understand with this miracle is that we don't have to figure this out in our power alone. We do not have to clean this mess up ourselves. Jesus is inviting us to take that me problem and make it a we problem. He's, he's inviting us to let him address this mess with us. So there's this little kid shows up with his lunch. And it's crazy to me. You got 10,000 people there and one person had enough sense to bring a lunch. Now, I, I like to just kind of envision in my, in my imagination as, you know, little boys, and he's in the kitchen that morning, and he's banging around in the kitchen. His mom's like, hey, what are you doing in there? Making my lunch, Mom. Going to see Jesus today. You're making a lunch? Yeah, Mom, I'm making my lunch. I'm going to see Jesus today. You're going to see Jesus? You don't need a lunch. Jesus will take care of lunch. Shoot, boy. A couple weeks ago, your Aunt Bertha, she was at this wedding, and they ran out of wine, and Jesus just made more himself, and you know your Aunt Bertha, she can put him back. She said it was the best stuff she ever had. You're going to see Jesus. You don't need a lunch. I'm making my lunch. Mom makes his lunch and goes to see Jesus. And he gets there, and he gets caught up in this whole mess with Andrew and Philip. This little boy gets caught up in this whole mess where Jesus takes not enough and turns it into more than enough. This little boy takes his lunch, a lunch that is clearly insufficient to address the, the, the issues at hand, and he gives it to Jesus. And Jesus has the people sit down and he thanks his Father in heaven for what he has. And then the power of God intervenes in the course of natural law. And Jesus takes what's not enough. And he turns it into enough for everybody to have something to eat. Enough for everyone to have enough. Now imagine being Andrew or Philip. Or that little boy. You know where that lunch came from. You know how much is there. And Jesus keeps, I, I like to envision it in a brown paper bag, because when I was a kid, that's what lunch came in, right? Jesus is reaching into this bag, and he's serving lunch, and you're, you're watching. Like, he just keeps reaching in there, and he's pulling more out. You're watching Jesus take what you know is not enough. And he turns it into, he makes sure everybody gets enough to eat. Not only so, but there is more than enough. There are 12 baskets left over when they get finished. Because Jesus takes not enough and turns it into more than enough. You see, when it comes to a mess, it's not about the resources we have on hand as much as it is getting those resources into the right person's hands. 
In the hands of that little boy, in the hands of Philip, in the hands of Andrew, five loaves and two fishes, it's not enough. It's not even close. But in the hands of Jesus, five loaves and two fishes is a feast for thousands. The resources haven't changed. It's whose hands you get the resources into. Now, we get this when it comes to other areas of life, but we tend to forget this when it comes to Jesus. Like, you take a, you take a football, you put it into my hands, you know what you get? Underthrown balls and a sore shoulder. You take a football, you put it into Tom Brady's hands, you get a Lombardi trophy. I don't care how much you dislike the guy, he keeps winning, all right? You, you take a golf club, you put it into my hands, you get worm burners and slices. You take a golf club, you put it into Dustin Johnson's hands, you get a green jacket. You take a tennis racket, you put it into my hands, you get whiffs and cursing, all right? You take a tennis racket, you put it into Serena Williams' hands, you get a grand slam. You take resources and you put them into your hands or mine, so often we come up with not enough. You take resources, you put them into the hands of Jesus, and you have more than enough. It's not about the resources on hand. It's about whose hands you get them into. And gang, there's something freeing in that. There's a freedom to be found there. This little boy takes all he has and he puts it in Jesus' hands. And then he trusts Jesus with the results. A little boy doesn't put what he has into Jesus' hands and then sit there biting his nails, worrying, can Jesus come through or not? I don't know. Little boy doesn't take what he has, gives it to Jesus, and then tells Jesus what to do with it. You know, Jesus, if you cut those crackers on an angle, they might go a little bit further. No, he takes what he has, he puts it in the hand of Jesus, and he trusts Jesus with the results. He's not anxious. He lets the thing go. There's something incredibly freeing in that. See, there are messes in our world. There are messes in our lives. And we know that Jesus we read about in this Bible, he'd have us do something. Part of what Jesus would have us do is give him what we have. And then trust him with the results. Give him what we have and then trust him with the results. The giving is our job. The results are his job. That mess you see in your world, that mess you see in your life, your job is to give Jesus everything you have. You do what you know how to do. You... You get accomplished what you can genuinely accomplish in your power. You put it in Jesus' hands. Then you don't need to be anxious about the results. You don't need to worry about the results. The results are his problem. That's his job. You, 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 don't need to, you don't need to feel overwhelmed about the size of the problem that you're facing or the lack of resources that you have on hand. Again, your job is to give Jesus what you have. The giving is your job. The producing is his job. That's his problem. 
You, you take what you have, you put it into the hands of Jesus, and you trust him with the results. There is something incredibly freeing that takes place when we do that. We're not carrying around a weight anymore that was never ours to carry in the first place. John doesn't tell us what they did with those 12 baskets of leftovers. I like to think they gave them to the little boy. Again, just in my imagination, I can see that kid walking up to the house. <laughs> hey, Mom, you're never going to believe this, right? The stories that we would tell of how God showed up and did something unbelievable. The story that you or I would tell when we say to somebody, you're never going to believe this. Those stories begin when we take what we have and we put it in the hands of Jesus and then trust him with the results. John said, I wrote these down so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I picked these miracles out, put pen to paper, so that you would continue to believe that he is the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you may have life and the power of his name. Hopefully with this sign, we have seen that in Jesus, we have one who sees room for a miracle when all we can see is a mess. That in Jesus, we have one who wants to take our me problems and make them we problems. That in Jesus, we have one who could take our scarcity and turn it into abundance. That in Jesus, we have one who's saying, hey, give me everything you have. You just put it in my hands. And then you trust me with the results. Would you pray with me, church? Father, thank you so much just for these signs that through your Holy Spirit, you inspired John to write down for us. Father, just as, as we look at the messes in our world, as we look at the messes in our lives, and we have this sense, this calling within us that you would have us respond. Help us to know we don't have to figure all this out ourselves. This isn't getting done and our power, and our wisdom, and our strength, and our resources. Help us to know you're inviting us to take this me problem and to make it a we problem. Help us to know Jesus longs to interject enormous power into our lives and to do what we could never do ourselves. Help us to find freedom in just giving him what we have 
and then trust in him with the results. Father, we just look forward to the stories that we will tell about you're never going to believe what my God did. Stories that begin with trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.